listening to episode 20 of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, and I can't believe it's already been 20 episodes. Uh, When I started this project back in February of 2018, I didn't really have like a full plan of what I wanted to do with this podcast. I really only had one episode recorded and a few ideas. And since then, the women that I've been able to interview, um, the stories that I've been able to share... I'm just really blessed that you guys continue to tune in every week. I'm really grateful for the sponsors that we've had and for the women who have been open and sharing their stories. So stay tuned for more episodes. I'm really excited for what's to come. And thank you all again. Today's episode features Tanya De Silva, who is a brilliant woman, to put it simply. She is a child, youth, and family therapist and holds a number of impressive letters behind her name that stand for accomplishments in the field, including an honors bachelor's of arts and science degree. She is certified in cognitive behavioral therapy from the University of Toronto, as well as applied behavioral analysis for educators through the Geneva Center for Autism, and she holds an honors advanced child and youth care diploma from Humber College. She is now the clinical director at Behavior Matters, which provides therapeutic support to Toronto and the GTA. And Behavior Matters is also uh, the sponsor and our podcast partner for this episode, which I'm really grateful for. So Behavior Matters is a really unique service center that provides everything from individual and family counseling to group programs for children and youth. Their motto is, we don't see problems, we see solutions and opportunities for growth. I know from personal experiences that interacting with different therapists as a young adult, having great people behind the scenes of something, you know, professionals that truly care about their work and their patients is so important to your experience of recovery and getting better. And Behavior Matters really strives to help individuals become the best version of themselves in a really personalized way based on your needs. They even have online programs for young people, which I think is really great, especially when the reality is that services are not always accessible for all people, uh, depending on where you live and where your income is. So if you're in the GTA or you're in Toronto, you can learn more about Behavior Matters at behaviormatters.ca or on Facebook or Instagram at behaviormatters. Uh, seriously, check them out, you guys. Uh, they are doing some really amazing work, and I think you're really going to enjoy Tanya's uh, episode today, sharing a little bit more from both the professional side, but her story as to how she got into the work that she now does. So let's get into the episode. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. I'm really excited to dive a little bit deeper into your story. So you work in Toronto. Are you from there, or where did you grow up? Uh, Yeah, so I was born and raised in Toronto. I've always been in the city in the West End. And were you always interested in working in mental health, or how did this interest spark in you? Actually, not at all. So when I was younger, I had, like, no real interest in the mental health field. Even when I was in high school and university, I wanted to get into law or, like, public relations or something completely different. I think a lot of that, to be honest, had to do with when I was younger, I wasn't really as emotionally in tune as I am now. Um, I had a hard time being vulnerable. I had a hard time talking about my own emotions. So it was something I always kind of avoided um, until I was faced with my own mental health. So I think for me, there was a couple of defining moments, but 
um, when I was probably around 17, grade 11, so whatever, however old I was there, I went through uh, a relationship that wasn't the healthiest. There was a lot of uh, like, toxic, like toxic aspects and stuff that went into that that ended up having me go through like some abuse, like emotional, physical, stuff like that, and then it also led to uh, being diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. So I think when I went to that, it states mental health in a whole other way, and then I... I guess I became really interested in it because I didn't understand what was going on in me. So I wanted to learn everything I could about it. I wanted, I guess, essentially to like make it go away at that age, right? So um, it just really sparked my interest in learning more about mental health, learning more about anxiety. Um, and then while I was doing that for myself, I just kind of fell in love with the field and um, everything that comes with like psychology and all that other stuff. Mm. You wrote a really great piece for the Sad Collective about your pen, your path to mental health advocacy, and there was a specific quote. I'm going to read it, so I hope that this yeah. doesn't like <laughs> embarrass yeah. you. But I thought it was so good, and I really resonated with it. And you said, "As soon as I broke free of the fear of being vulnerable, stigmatized, or judged for my experiences." My life began to unravel in the most beautiful way. When I reframed my experiences, I saw them as strength of character. Only then was I able to become the best version of myself to begin to love and accept myself in my truest form. I saw my hardships, struggles, and my so-called ugly truths as the most powerful part of my journey and used them to create a life rooted in positivity. So when I read that, I was like, wow, like I had goosebumps reading that story. And you also talked about a few defining moments that kind of changed your life um, on your path to mental health advocacy. And you touched really briefly on one of them just now, but I'd love for you to kind of share those stories a little more in depth, if you would. Mm -hmm. Well, and that quote, I remember even when I wrote it and like I read it back, um, I was like, okay, wow, like, I finally put this into words. I think with that, it's, especially when I was younger, and I mean, I think a lot of people struggle with this in general, but being vulnerable. Like, the way I used to see vulnerability um, when I was younger was as a weakness. And then as I got older and as I did a lot of my own personal work and just kind of going through my own mental health experience, I realized that vulnerability was a strength, right? So I feel like as soon as I clued into that, that is when my life started unraveling, when I started owning those moments that I was embarrassed about or worried about, um, you know, whatever emotion it might bring in. Um, it just, I don't know, maybe look at life in myself, which more importantly is the way I look at myself in a whole other way. So I think that was definitely a changing factor for me, just that ownership piece. Um, I remember even when, and I guess, I don't know, like a lot of people go through this. I mean, I hear my clients talk about this too. It's like we have this perception that we need to be perfect and things always need to look great and we need to do well. And especially with social media, I feel like that's even stronger now. Um, but I find, you know, when people are the most beautiful or like the most fun to be around is when they are being authentic and being vulnerable. So that's something that even in my work at the clinic and my own personal work that I do, uh, that vulnerability is always something I'm tapping into. Um, I think it's one of the most powerful things to tap into. So yeah, that's a big thing that I think came out of that for me. And then I know I touched on it briefly, but that first experience uh, when I was 16 was I was in a relationship. Well, something I've always been really passionate about as well. And I think really adds to 
um, just my experiences as a therapist is travel. Like, I love traveling. I love being immersed in new cultures and learning new things. And so that's something that was rooted in me from a really young age. My parents have always been huge on traveling. So we go away a lot, and uh, I ended up going away, and I met someone. And then we were young. You know, it was like puppy love at the beginning. Uh, but we stayed in touch, and we got into this long-distance relationship when I was, like, 17, which I don't think I was mature enough to handle that um, at that time either. But um, we started seeing each other, and it just it was a whole bunch of aspects that I had never experienced, and um, it just, again, made that relationship develop a lot quicker. Um, so throughout that, you know, I started noticing, just like I guess little red flags, but, I mean, when you're that young, you don't really know how to interpret them. You know, like, there was... Like, he would be really mean to me sometimes or just a little bit more aggressive. And, I mean, even just from, like, male role models and stuff like that, my dad has always been, like, the kindest, most gentle person. So that was a little hard for me because I'm like, this is different than what I'm used to. But not even just when you're younger. I feel like even I still hear this from clients now. You think that if your experience isn't as intense as other people's experience, that maybe it's not valid or it's not accurate. So... Um, I think that emotional abuse and that physical abuse started um, early on, and I just didn't really know how to interpret it or handle it or um, deal with it, so I kind of just hit it and tried to keep it to myself, Um, and what ended up happening was after being together for probably six months to a year, I started having panic attacks, uh, and I didn't even know what they were originally. so I remember, like, the first panic attack I had. I think we were going to, I think it was, like, New Year's. We were going to some events, and my family and friends and everyone was there. And in retrospect, now looking back, I know that um, I was probably worried about, you know, him drinking and him getting aggressive and, um, you know, being mean and them noticing that. So it probably triggered a lot of, like, stress and anxiety in me. And I had my first panic attack, which I didn't know what it was. And my family started taking me to every hospital, every naturopath, every doctor, every person they could think of because they didn't understand what was going on. I went from being, like, extremely outgoing, extremely talkative to isolating and not even being able to go to school or go to work because I would have panic attacks. And I didn't understand where they were coming from. I didn't understand how to handle them. And um, I remember going in and literally doctors being like, no, you have anxiety of panic attacks. And I was so resistant to that. I'm like, no, there's no way. Like, that's not what it is. It can't be that. It has to be something else. So um, I fought that for a really long time. And then eventually there was, like, a really big moment for me, I think, especially after hiding it and holding it in for so long and just not being honest with myself or anybody else. There was one event where the, like, physical abuse kind of hit a new level. And uh, I remember just having a moment where, I was sitting on the floor and I was like, who are you? Like, I didn't even recognize who I was or what was going on in my life or why I was dealing with this. And Mm -hmm. I had made that decision there to, like, tell my family and kind of just walk away from it. And the funniest thing is that a lot of us feel like we hold on to so worried about the worst-case scenario, how people are going to react, what's going to happen. And as soon as I was honest, you know, the support that came from, like, my family and my friends and everyone else, was huge, and then I had a moment where I was like, why did I hold this in for so long, right, and it wasn't about them, I think it was more about me, like, we think that other people are going to judge us, but a lot of the times it's that internal judgment, you know, we're judging ourselves, we're worried about it, but at the end of the day, people start noticing it anyway, right, so I think that was 
one of the biggest defining moments for me was going through that and kind of losing who I was. But the way I phrase it now is I, I felt like I lost who I was, but it felt like in that process I actually found who I really was. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that because this is something that I think so many women experience in relationships, even from a young age. And I actually haven't had anybody on the show who's openly talked about that yet. And it's something that I've wanted to you know, have an open dialogue about. So thank you so much. Um, No problem. I I think with that too, like something I always want to note, just because if this does resonate with anybody is, like I said, we all kind of minimize our experiences because maybe they aren't what we see on TV or what we expect that worst case scenario to be, but it doesn't mean that they're not valid, right? Like even if it is, you know, to them something that's not as big, as they think abuse should be. If it still feels like abuse, then it still is, right? Mm. So that's a big thing. It's just cooling into everyone's experience is different, but it doesn't mean that it's not valid. Mm. Yeah, that's really important. And it's so wonderful that you had so much support coming out of that situation. Um, But then again, at 22-ish, I think you said in your story, you had experience with you had another experience with mental health that really taught you about resiliency. What was that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, when I was in my teens, that happened. And I think that also made me grow up very quickly. Like, I started doing my own work. Like, I had seen a couple of doctors. I honestly didn't really connect with any therapists or anyone that I had seen um, throughout that process. So I ended up doing a lot of my own work. Like, I started um, reading books on mental health, on anxiety, on resiliency on vulnerability on you know self-care all that stuff so it was something that I became just really interested in and really passionate about and um I got to a place where I was managing my panic attacks I was functioning again I was you know back in university I was doing what I needed to do and I was in a really good place so um you know I felt like I was able to get myself through it and I was in a place where I was controlling my you know my anxiety or my mental health or whatever it might be instead of it controlling me and then interestingly enough, when I felt like I was in such a positive place, I did have another experience where I finished at U of C. And like most people, I went away uh, to Europe for most of the summer. And I was in a relationship at that time as well. And uh, I remember when I was away, I mean, I'm pretty, I wasn't super emotionally in tune when I was younger, but after that experience and over those years, I, I became um, pretty in tune with myself and just my intuition and stuff was pretty strong. So I knew that there was something going on back home, but I wasn't really sure what it was. Like I could tell when I spoke to my parents and stuff that there was just something. So um, I remember when we landed, we got back uh, from Europe. So I've been gone for, I think about eight weeks. And uh, as soon as I landed, my mom called me and uh, she was like, you know, we didn't want to ruin your trip because you know, you put so much work into uh, university and graduating and we wanted you to enjoy it. She's like, but on your way home, you should probably stop by Cam H. And, I was like, okay, I'm like, why am I stopping there? And there's no real easy way to kind of put that into words for someone. So she was like, you know, we didn't want to tell you, but um, you know, the person I was seeing at the time was hospitalized and he was there um, in like the inpatient unit. So I just remember breaking down crying because I didn't even know what to do with that. Like I didn't mm-hmm. know how to go about it. I didn't understand what I was walking into. Um, you know, it was just a really confusing thing. Like I felt like, I knew a lot about mental health, and then when that happened, I felt like I knew nothing. So 
I remember walking into Cam Beach, and it was like the lock, uh, lockdown unit. So someone had to come get me and take me in. And um, I guess while I was away, uh, the person who was seeing ended up uh, being diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So that I remember that moment um, so vividly because, and again, I feel now in my career with a lot of clients who are bipolar or schizophrenic. So I know that sometimes, you know, when you see them, it's, it doesn't look like them, right? Like, mm-hmm. when, especially when you're in that manic state. So when I saw that person, it, I knew who he was, but I didn't recognize him. You know, the things he was saying, he was saying to me didn't make sense. So when it comes to, especially I find bipolar and schizophrenia, with anxiety, with depression, you know, you can get really good at hiding it. You can get really good at, um, you know, isolating yourself and managing it, but with schizophrenia and bipolar, you can't hide it. Like, it just doesn't let you. So when I saw that, it just really made me face, like, mental health. And I was like, wow, this is a whole um, other avenue here, um, you know, where, again, people think things are very real, but they're not real, right? Like, it's hallucinations, it's paranoias, it's stuff like that. So um, that was a whole other ball game for me, and that was a good six months of, you know, going to Cam H and where, uh, you know, finding him on my doorstep and having to take him back. So, again, at 21, 22, that was a lot to deal with. That was a lot to handle. And I think it also triggered my own, like, insecurity, my own worries about my mental health. Because I remember having a moment where I was like, how about if my anxiety does come back full force the way it was? You know, how would we ever be able to function if both of our mm-hmm. mental health is in the state, right? So, it does make you face yourself as well. Um, so that was definitely a challenging part. And that, I think, is what... It pushed me from wanting to understand mental health and to be really curious about it to, want it, uh, to actually want to be in the field. Because I find... And again, everyone has different experiences, but my experience is there's a lot of people in the field that are doing it as a job, but there's very few people who do it and are passionate about it and love it and do it in a way where they like connect with their clients and really, really help them and support them. And I felt like I was at a point in my life that I could do that. And I went from thinking of careers as just being something oh, I'm good at or um, I might enjoy to something that I felt I would be really good at and would be really fulfilled in doing. So mm-hmm. I think that was that changing point for me there. That's really interesting that you mentioned how some people go into the mental health space just seeing it as a job, you know, and... Mm-hmm. I have definitely had experiences seeing professionals where it felt so disconnected and I was like, why am I even here? Like, this isn't helping me. Like, there's no, it it doesn't feel right. Um, And I think that like deters a lot of people from trying to find the right therapist or trying to find, you know, the right professional to help them because it is kind of like, it's almost like dating. (laughs) Like, sometimes you have to like weed out. Yeah, you have to weed out like, you know, what works for you and what doesn't. And it can be really exhausting um, for the person who's struggling. But I'm also curious, like from the professional side and as someone who has experienced mental health issues yourself, do you ever feel emotionally exhausted doing the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even touching on that process, um, I remember when I went through it as well, like, first of all, the wait times are so long and, you know, you're going through so much that by the time you go in to see someone, you know, you're really hoping it works. And then when you don't connect, like you said, I know you had a similar experience, it does kind of sometimes make you feel 
just discouraged and just mm-hmm. hopeless. Like, so I find that process is really difficult. And I think when I went through it, like, 10 years ago, there wasn't as many resources as there are now. Um, so even when I see clients, I always tell them, like, you need to connect with the person you're seeing. So, like, if you don't connect with me, I'm like, it's okay. I'm like, we'll find someone that you do connect with, right? So that connection, like, finding someone that fits what you're looking for, that is experiencing what you're looking for is huge. And what I always tell people is, you know, it's a process. You know, sometimes you do have to go through a couple of people before you meet someone that you connect with, but go through it because you will find someone. And, I mean, you don't have to go through just, the referral system that, you know, the doctor whoever provides. Like, there's tons of resources like Psychology Today and stuff where you can find, you know, private clinics um, or other therapists that are covered by insurance. So I think you're making a commitment to work through your mental health. So you want to make sure that you're doing the work and finding the best match for you. Because I find with me, I did just kind of give up on it. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be a therapist. I'm going to do it on my own. And luckily for me, that worked out. But... Um, you know, that frustration is something that I see in clients and I feel for them. So, you know, just making sure that you're kind of doing the work there is important. When it comes to that exhaustion, I think, again, something that I constantly work on, vulnerability is a big thing to me, but balance is another thing that is always on my top priority list. Um, I used to have a really hard time with balancing things when I was younger. I would take on too much, do too much, and then burn out. So, once I started um, working in the field, I realized that, you know, you can't let that burnout happen, right? Like, if I'm seeking a balanced life, I'll be living a balanced life. So I do sometimes get tired, but that's where I always tap into my self-care um, rituals and things that work for me. And they actually change depending on, like, what level, I guess, of exhaustion I'm at. I think, again, like I said, travel is a big thing for me. Like, I love traveling. I always have, um, you know social interactions are big for me like I love seeing my friends and going out to dinner and I think that's great self-care but the self-care that I find that does the best like the best uh, well I guess it works the best for me is when I am burnt out um, or I'm feeling tired is I find I commit to so many things and even with clients like I'm committing to a certain amount of people a day like I'm always on a schedule I'm always interacting with someone so what I do is like I'll clear my day like whatever day I have off and it might sound weird, but, like, I actually don't leave my house. Like, I organize <laughs> my seat. I organize my apartment. I clean everything up. I'll do a brain dump for me. is always really good self-care. If I have a bunch of stuff on my mind, I'll just write it all out on paper so then I know, all right, I'm not going to deal with you today, but tomorrow when I'm ready, everything I have to do is here, right? Like, it's out of my mind. I've externalized it. It's somewhere else. I love to journal. I love to meditate. Meditation's actually been something become a really big part of my life I did um like a five-day silent meditation retreat which I think was another like big changing point for me being completely like isolated and not being able to speak to people for five days or look at people and just wow. that whole aspect of that silent meditation okay wait retreat. so you literally didn't talk like walk no. me through this retreat because this sounds really interesting um, you know what's actually interesting? There actually, there's a lot of them. I know in India and Thailand and stuff like that, and I've listened to those as well. And there's one, um, I don't I can't remember where it is, but it's somewhere in Ontario that you can do a 10-day one. But there is one in Toronto in the city, and that's where I did mine. So it's a five-day uh, silent meditation retreat. I can actually send you the information and stuff after if you want it. But basically, you go and you check in and 
you can't have like there's no stimulant. So you can't bring a journal, you can't bring music, you can take your phone, like everything is just given at the door. You can't like beautify yourself, so there's no product, you know, you're just in um, like loose fitting clothing, even with eating. So you fast majority of the day. You eat at 6 a.m. and 11, and you spend your entire day meditating and just with yourself, with your thoughts. So I did that, and the first day I got there, within an hour, I wanted to leave. <laughs> I'm like, this is not what I'm doing. And then my like internal voice was like, oh, you don't need this. Like, you're a therapist. You're fine. You know. And I was just going through all these emotions because I was so uncomfortable being there. Um, and then I worked through it. Um, but I just. I found that the process of it was so interesting because every day it's like I would go through another emotion and it would be so intense. Like the first day, and again, this obviously makes sense because I have anxiety, but my anxiety was like through the roof. Like I felt it everywhere and it's because you have no distractions, right? Like you're just there with yourself. Um, And then the next day, all of a sudden, like I felt sadness. Uh, the following day I felt anger like you go through all of these emotions and it just brings up things that you've forgotten about or you know things that have happened to you in the past that for some reason pop up while you're meditating and Hmm. um, you work through all of them but to me the biggest thing that I learned from that was even in general in life like we feel really extreme emotions but if you just sit with them and just see them and don't react to them they pass like all of our emotions come and go the thing is, when we're out in the world, we either react to them or uh, we distract ourselves with something else or someone else. But when you're meditating, you can't. So you have to sit through that uncomfortable feeling and realizing that we can get through those extremely uncomfortable feelings, I think, is one of the best like, life lessons ever. So it was hard, but yeah. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Okay. I'm going to look into that. It terrifies me. Like the thought, just you talking about it, I was feeling anxiety being like, oh wow, like, could I actually do this? Like what, like, I don't think I can actually go without like looking at my phone or texting or talking, but I'm sure once you get through a day or two days, it must just be like, I don't know, really fascinating experience. Yeah. It doesn't really get easier. And then it's funny because you start noticing like I remember, because I did this over the Easter long weekend, so my whole family got together for Easter, and I remember I had a moment where I was like, they don't even know where I am, I feel like I should just go, <laughs> but they probably knew where I was, like, you know what I mean? So it's like, your mind just starts pulling up all these things, and I was like, oh, I've been away from work for five days, like, why am I doing this? Like, I need to reconnect, and you just come up with all these excuses. I remember I literally, like, cause you leave your shoes and everything, in a different area, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to walk home, I'm like, my parents don't live too far from here, I was just so over it, but you realize, like, how scared you are to be with yourself, like, alone, Mm. you know, so, but, yeah, no, it's definitely an amazing experience, and that's something that, I mean, I don't obviously meditate for days on end, I'll do, like, 10-15 minutes, but the meditation is a really big self-care for me, because I clue into what's my emotion, and where is this coming from? You know, like where is it stemming from? Why am I like so panicked about this or worried about this or whatever it is? So, especially in this field, you need to be practicing what you preach, right? Like, 
Um, So speaking of meditation and self-care in general, I think both of these things have become really buzzy lately and like really trendy, right? So I'm really curious on your take of how do you speak to your clients about self-care? Do you think because it's so overhyped now that we've kind of lost some of its meaning or do you think it's a positive thing that, you know, we're really talking about self-care in a mainstream way? Um, I feel like it's positive because, I mean, we're talking about it and we're encouraging it and I think it's great, but I think you're right. It has become very fuzzy, but not even just that. I find, you know, there's a lot of people now in general that claim to be, um, you know, meditation practitioners or life coaches or all these things and they don't actually have the qualifications Mm. to do it. So that's something that I've noticed come up more with my clients where, you know, they find these people, but it's like they've done like a weekend course or something like that, and now they're claiming to be, um, you know, a therapist or whatever it is, right? So that's something that I notice a lot, and what I always tell people is, you know, to be able to do this professionally, you're putting in a good amount of time into school, a good amount of years. It's not just a weekend course, I mean, this is your mental health, this is your life. You want to make sure that someone that actually knows what they're doing. A really good indicator of that is if they are registered with a regulating body, right? Um, Because that means, you know, there's a code of conduct you need to follow. Um, There's a whole bunch of requirements uh, to register and re-register every year, right? So that's always a really big thing. And that's something I've noticed a lot where I've had clients come in and they're like, I was working with this person, but, you know, it didn't really help or this is the advice they gave me. And sometimes I'll hear the advice on the notice that connection too with this whole life coach industry becoming like (laughs) the new thing and it's like everybody and their friend is a life coach all of a sudden and everybody's charging like thousands of dollars for these courses that they made up that some other life coach taught them how to do and it's kind of like been frustrating for me because on Instagram specifically it's like you can sometimes build relationships with people and then find out that they just want to sell you their life coaching course and that's why they're following you I'm like oh my goodness like I don't know I don't know how this is a good thing I don't I'm not so sure about that well and, that's, and I feel like Insta- I, I think Instagram's a great tool but I also think it can be very dangerous right because it's true it's so easy to like sell something or show something in a certain way but it doesn't mean that it's legit right yeah. so um yeah I that's something it's funny like even with a bunch of my other friends who are in the industry and stuff. That's something that everyone's noticing. There's all these new terms that, like, none of us have even heard of. And we're like, what kind of coach is that? Like, that's a thing. But, um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's positive. But, you know, it's just, again, going back to, like, educating yourself and making sure that you're finding the best therapist and you're going through the process, you know, the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in part two, like, Maybe some of this is coming out because of this combination of awareness and 
accessibility in other ways. Like when I think about a lot of the mental health advocacy that I used to be involved in, and I still am to some extent, but not so much um, full time anymore. So much of it is encouraging people to reach out for help, to, you know, to say, to, to, to be honest and open about what they're experiencing, to reach out to professionals, to ask for help. Um, but I think awareness isn't always enough in those cases because not everybody has somebody to reach out to, or when they do reach out, it's like you were saying before, like there's wait times, there's costs associated for people who might not have insurance. Um, there's still these barriers to people receiving that help. And so how have you seen the landscape change since you've been working in mental health? And what do you think that we can do better to help people that are struggling? So it's definitely changed a lot. I mean, when I went through my own experience, I was in high school. Um, so I was working, I mean, I worked with the population now. Um, and like I was in that population when I went through it. So um, I remember when I went through it, there wasn't really a lot of support. It was one of those things that like, if I didn't go to school because I had a panic attack. They weren't really supportive. They were just like, well, you need to be here. You're going to fail. And, like that mm-hmm. didn't help. <laughs> made it worse. Um, you know, like, of course, they had, like, a guidance counselor and stuff, but, I mean, the supports weren't really there, and I don't think the schools are really equipped to deal with that, and I find now a lot of schools still aren't really equipped to deal with it, but they're able to provide families with outside resources, right? So, even at like, Behavior Matters at my clinic, um, we get tons of schools, like, social workers and teachers and parents and stuff who reach out to us because their school has put them in contact with us or they want to put us in contact with the family because they know that that family or that child needs, you know, a certain support or assistance or program or whatever it might be. So I think it's changed in the sense that um, there is more resources and a lot of organizations and schools and people are outsourcing where if they can't house it and they can't do it, they'll find someone that can. So I definitely think that is a positive. Um, The other piece too, like we talked about sometimes, you know, we don't have that support system where it's difficult um, to speak about it. And I think, and I know this is hard, but it's even just accepting that internal, like, vulnerability. Like, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay, um, you know, to be honest about what you're struggling with and what's going on on, you know, on a daily basis for you. So even if it is just kind of slowly having those conversations or putting it out there and just getting comfortable with, hearing yourself be, be, be vulnerable or, mm. you know, mention that you have anxiety. So I remember when I was younger, that was something when I did my own research that really helped me to get comfortable with that and helped me to start working towards getting the help that I needed. Um, I would just test it. Like, I would literally test my anxiety where if I was anxious about, I don't know, going to a concert. Like, I remember when I was younger, I would never say that I was anxious. I would never bring up anxiety. But... I would just say it. I would just throw it out there. I'm like, oh, I'm a little anxious about that. And like, just to see how people would react. Mm. And then I started realizing, like, okay, like, I'm not getting this huge negative reaction that I thought I was going to get, right? So even just, like, small little steps like that, like, being comfortable with the vulnerability piece, testing it out. Um, another big thing that I always recommend and I always bring up is just that acceptance piece. Like, we're all human. Like, we all have things that we're going through, right? And just accepting that this is part of your journey or what you're dealing with right now it doesn't define you it doesn't mean it's going to feel like this forever right um I always do this like humanization exercise like with myself and with my clients as well but we have this 
like ability to see people as perfect and then not to see that in ourselves, right? So um, even when we are looking at others that we look up to, you know, just looking for those like human aspects of them where, you know, like maybe they messed up on what they said or, you know, maybe they also are a little overwhelmed. Like not just seeing people in a perfect form, but seeing them as human, accepting us as human and being okay with that. And then I think the biggest thing is just seeing it, seeing the journey as, like a, as multiple steps and not just one huge stride. So like breaking it down. So if you're anxious and if you're having panic attacks, obviously, you know, most people, their goal is they don't want to have them. They want to be at school and at work and, you know, just whatever functioning. But it's not going to happen like that overnight. So even if it is just like these little steps, like I'm going to wake up and I'm going to have breakfast and I'm going to try walking to the subway. And if I don't make it to school, it's okay. You know, like I took one extra step today. So those are usually the three main things I would focus on, like being okay with the vulnerability, um, accepting that you're human and what you're going through, and then just breaking things down into like small manageable steps. And a lot of the time you look back at these small steps and you've come a long way, right? And it reduces the anxiety there too. That was so good. <laughs> I'm sitting here like listening and then I go, yeah, I'm interviewing this woman, but <laughs> I'm like taking yeah. it all in. <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts on routines, like morning routines, nightly routines? Do you have a routine yourself? Do you encourage people to, you know, get into routines on things? Um, I do. Um, I find like I do break my routines every so often. Like I think routine and structure is good because it builds habits and, um, it just kind of keeps you accountable and just gives you that structure that you need. So I do. Um, I mean, for everyone it's different. I think it depends on your lifestyle, um, you know, your commitments, your responsibilities. Um, for me, I typically work later because I see clients. So um, my day probably doesn't start as early as most people, but I like to wake up. I like to, you know, go to the gym. I like to meditate. Again, I have this thing where, like, I like organizing my space and just organizing my mind, right? So I do a brain dump a lot. Um, I'll do one weekly and then I just look at it over the week just to make sure that I'm targeting things. So I think it's great, but I also feel like sometimes breaking a routine is good too. Like it's Mm. part of that self-care. I like going away for weekends and not having a routine or not having a schedule or being disconnected. So I think it's good, but I think, you know, we don't have to stick to it to the extent where it's going to cause more anxiety, you know, if you haven't knocked something off. Yeah, yeah, I really like that perspective of, like, breaking your routine can be self-care sometimes, because nobody really talks about that. Nobody's ever said that, but I really like that. Well, they don't, and that's the thing, is sometimes it's like you need to, and I mean, I've done this before, too, where I'm just having a week, and I mean, I don't do this often, obviously, but, you know, sometimes you need it, where I'm like, you know what, I'm clearing my afternoon, you know, I just, I need to break this routine I need to practice some self-care I need to just you know do something for me and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I mean you come back the next day and you're ready to go right like it depends on you and what you're going through and what you need so I think again it goes back to just being compassionate with yourself like if there's something you can't do it's okay like it doesn't mean it's not going to get done love it all right well at the end of every episode I like to ask five Five or six. I don't know how many I'm going to ask. Probably five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quick fire rand questions. So you can answer with a word, a sentence, whatever comes to mind. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, ready. Okay. What's your zodiac sign? I'm a Gemini. Oh, 
Uh, coffee or tea? Do you put anything in your tea or you drink it black? Uh, I usually drink it black. What is your favorite place in the world? Um, favorite place in the world. I actually love traveling, so it's always so hard for me to answer that. But um, I love Greece. I feel like I've never had a bad time in Greece. <laughs> oh, that is like the number one place on my bucket list. I want to go so badly. <laughs> and finally, what does your perfect self-care Sunday look like? me so I feel like I already kind of touched on it a little bit but I love those days where I don't have to leave the house I don't have to do anything um I can just organize my place uh order in food watch movies read naps like that is my perfect self-care Sunday love it thank you so much for sharing and for all of your advice and your thoughts this is a really great episode I loved having you thanks that was so awesome it was so easy too (laughs) so easy to talk to you Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. You can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud to get notifications every time we upload a new episode. So you're always up to date. Always up to date. Uh, you can follow Self Care Sunday at Self Care Sunday on Instagram if you want a little bit of visual inspiration, or you can follow me, your host, at Kaylee.e. Kaylee, K-A-Y-L-E-Y dot E. And of course, you can follow Behavior Matters on Facebook or Instagram at Behavior Matters. And check out their website, behaviormatters.ca, especially if you are in Toronto or the GTA. All right. Happy Self-Care Sunday, everyone.